did you know that in the mid-19th century, Dublin city centre was packed with women running their own businesses? Well, actually, it wasn't just Dublin. All across Ireland, women were also running businesses. This is extraordinary, considering what Ireland was like at the time, a male-dominated, patriarchal society. They challenged the status quo, these women, and didn't limit themselves to businesses associated with other women. They were pawnbrokers, they were tobacconists, distillers, they ran medical halls, and many proved they were just as able as any man, despite what society at the time might have thought. Joining me this evening is historian Dr Antonia Hart, who's recently completed a PhD entitled Irish Women in Business, 1850 to 1922, Navigating the Credit Economy. She spent the last number of years unearthing the stories of these extraordinary women, who they were and what they did. Antonia, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Your research covers the period from the end of the famine to the creation of the Irish Free State. Now, what impact, if any, first of all, did the famine have on women and their ability to enter the world of business? Because we don't think of this period or indeed the period after as being one where there were opportunities for women to be anything other than wives and mothers. Yeah, I mean, I think it does come as a surprise to find that women were were running businesses at all. And certainly one of the one of the many aftershocks of the famine was that everything was split open really you know you couldn't have that level of loss and that level of death and emigration without society kind of cracking apart and and reforming and I think you probably would say that life opened up for both men and women Um, people were getting married later literacy levels were rising you know they had been ever since the introduction of the national school system in the 30s. And there was a drift towards urban centres, and I think that's a a story we probably know well. But also consumption of things like shop-bought food was increasing. And so you, you see opportunities for women arising, you know, not just in areas like teaching and as clerical staff, but also in areas like retail and hospitality, uh, which often involved starting up a business. Were there any legal barriers in the 1850s to women establishing a business? Um, well, of course, there were, there were difficulties with uh, property ownership. And that began to change with the Married Women's Property Act in the, in the 80s. There was a lot of difficulty, obviously, for women in accessing credit. And in fact, particularly in the early part of my research, um, a lot of the women don't have bank accounts and they're operating purely on on cash and and credit, but they're not actually keeping track of things in in bank accounts or, or they don't have mortgages. And it's very difficult actually for them to access credit when they need it. OK, let's look at the, the main thoroughfare of Dublin, Sackville Street as it was, O'Connell Street as it became. Were there many women running businesses there or in the immediate area? Well, actually, there were, yes. And I mean, Sackville Street, it's amazing. It's this huge street, you know, it's 150 feet wide with this amazing approach down to the river. And it's fascinating because obviously it was jammed with, with, with residents, but it was also connected to the quays. So it was near the port area and Eden Quay there had all kinds of rail and sea travel related businesses. But Sackville Street itself was where the really smart shops were. You know, it was where the smart hotels were, the luxury confectioners and the pipe and cigar shops, the department stores. And it's where everybody wanted to do business and it's where the smart shoppers wanted to go. So I looked at it really to to try to get an idea of what going into town would have felt like say, in in the 1890s, for example, and whether people would have seen women's businesses, whether they would have been aware of them. So let's say if you got a tram in from the suburbs and you got off at 
what is now the spire, which would have been the pillar, which was the tram terminus. And if you did um, a sort of 15 minute amble, really, down Sackville Street along Eden Quay, up Marlborough Street and back to the spire, back to the, the pillar, I should say, to get your tram home. On that walk, you would have passed at street level about 300 businesses and about 30 of those would have been run by women. So it probably doesn't seem like a lot, but when you think that on that 15-minute walk, you would have been passing a woman's business every 30 seconds, I think then you start to get an idea of how normal it must have seemed for a visitor to the city, for a Dubliner, that it was completely commonplace Mm. to see a woman in business. It must have been entirely unsurprising to them. Um, And I think that's really interesting because it's not just about the stats on women, but it's also about what we can learn about the experience for everybody of living in 19th century Dublin. This must have been one of the most sought after parts of the city of Dublin and in fact one of the most sought after shopping areas in Ireland so that if women are established even at a ratio of nine to one basically around the rest of the country there must have been similar statistics or perhaps slightly better than that. Around the rest of the country yeah and it's really gratifying you know when when you go looking for them in Belfast, in Cork, in Limerick and then also in smaller towns you know in in Westport and also in, in very rural villages there are women there in their thousands running businesses. But they weren't just doing the predictable things. They weren't just catering to other women. Not that male shop owners didn't cater to women at the time as as well. Give us an idea of the kind of range of activities they were involved in. Mostly they were involved in fairly small, locally focused businesses. They were in retail and hospitality, you know, where you'd probably expect to find them. So they're running shops and hotels and restaurants and cafes and boarding houses. But you do also see them in more unusual environments and in male-dominated environments like distilling. There were two or three successful distillers in large distilleries. I came across, I think, maybe sort of 12 to 15 women who were owning and managing regional newspapers, some obviously more active than others. Um, But you find them running sawmills, chair manufacturers, servants, agencies, and then you find them in pawnbroking, which was was massive, massively important. How did women get into pawnbroking? Well, I mean, pawnbroking is so interesting... And as I say, it's, it's, it's really important um, in the 19th century. And the pawnbroker himself or, or, or herself is a much mythologised figure, I suppose. I suppose, obviously, if you, were, if you were a woman or you were poor or if you were otherwise marginalised, it was very difficult to access credit, very difficult to borrow money other than within your network of friends and family. But in the pawnbroker, you know, you could walk into the pawnbroker with some small portable item, a piece of jewellery or a piece of clothing or a set of tools. And with almost no paperwork and virtually no questions, you could walk out again, having converted that, at least on a temporary basis, to Could you then walk down the road and open your own pawnbroker shop? Well, (laughs) I'm not sure you would have made enough from pawning your boots to do that. Because you needed quite a lot of money and to jump through a number of hoops. It was a a very, very regulated financial services industry. You had to be licensed. You had to have enough money to put up a surety on your own behalf. You also had to get, well, it varied at different times, but usually about three other people to put up sureties for you. There were other costs, you know, you 
had to get a plate license if you're going to deal in silver. You had to get a tobacco and snuff license if that's what you wanted to do. You had to be very financially literate. You had to make monthly returns and pay a shilling every time you did that to the regulator. And if you were a pawnbroker in Dublin, you also had to pay £100 tax effectively to the Dublin Metropolitan Police because pawnbrokers were associated with crime. And so to compensate for the extra level of business, they had to support the city policing budget. So you had to be ready to jump through all these hoops before you could actually um, get going. But evidently, the rewards were there and they were sufficient to attract plenty of women because you find plenty of women throughout the late 19th century and the early 20th century. You do find plenty of women active in in pawnbroking. You mentioned some unusual activities that you would not immediately associate with women, owning newspapers, owning distilleries, for example. Were those inherited rather than established as independent, as new entities by the women themselves in the main? There's no getting away from the fact that, of course, I would love to be able to say that women started their own businesses and and through their own agency decided what they wanted to do and develop the skills to do it. But there is no getting away from the fact that a lot of them did inherit businesses. Well, most of the men inherited businesses as well. Well, that's true. That's true. And some of the men were inheriting businesses from their mothers as well as from, Mm. from their fathers. You see that with women as well. They might have inherited from a mother or a father or from a husband. But you also see them going into partnerships. You see female friends going into partnership. I can think of a, a female partnership in, in, in millinery, for example. There was also um, a very successful legal scriveners firm in Dame Street, which was a three-way partnership between three sisters, Ada, Olive and Amy What Yates. is a scriveners firm? Pardon oh, me. the legal scriveners, they did all kinds of things. They basically made fair copies of things like wills and legal legal documents. Um, they would have typed things up for people. and so uh, the kind of stuff that we read when we go into an historical archive now, basically. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some of the personalities involved. Who was Margaret Lowry? Margaret Lowry. Your Margaret- face just lit up when I mentioned <laughs> Margaret Lowry. You see, I was going to say she's one of my favourite, but of course they're all, in, in one way or another, my favourites. Margaret Lowry ran the first-class porn office in Marlborough Street at 85 Marlborough Street, slap bang up against the pro-cathedral. And in fact, that premises is still a pawnbroker's shop and a lovely jeweller's as well. So she represented Mammon and next door was God. <laughs> next door presumably. was God. And that shop actually still has the three golden balls hanging as a, as a sign outside. But Margaret, she'd already been widowed once as a, as a young woman and she married, again, she married a guy called Lawrence McNally, who's a very successful Dublin pawnbroker. And when he died, Margaret took over the shop and there's plenty of surviving paperwork from her time. So you can actually see her in a private archive, her pawnbroking licence, the receipt for the money she paid to the DMP, her plate licence, all that kind of thing. And actually, there are surviving pawn tickets printed in, in her name. But her shop was a really, it was really high end. She wasn't really dealing in shawls and boots. She was dealing in diamond rings and oil paintings and grand pianos. You know, she was very high end. But the shop was destroyed in 1916, wasn't it? Well, it was. And in fact, you can get a glimpse of the kind of stock that she was carrying because her shop was looted. And so a number of people made claims for items that they had pawned before the rising started. As they made their compensation claims to the Property Losses Ireland Committee, they detailed what it was they had left with her. So that's a really interesting insight to, to what she dealt in. And in fact, there was one fellow called Thomas Malone, I think was his name. And he made a claim for certain items which he had with very bad timing left into her 
at the beginning of April 1916, a silver chain and a gold bracelet, various items of jewellery. But when he came to make his claim to the Property Losses Committee, he had to explain, and I'm sure he was rather embarrassed to do so, that the name on the ticket wasn't actually his name because he had pawned the items using a false name. <laughs> Hoist with his own petard. Absolutely. Did he get away with it? Did he get, did he get the compensation? He didn't get as much as he was looking right. for. Right, OK. Well, he probably didn't but deserve as much as he was looking for. Did. OK, um, now, Mary Ann Locke, L-O-C-K-E. It's an unusual name and it's, an, it's a name that I associate with whiskey. And you'd be right to, yeah. Mm, Marianne Locke. So she was born Marianne Devereux. Her father was was a distiller. And she married John Locke, who ran the Brusner Distillery, which we now know as Locke's. And I think it was interesting the fact that she grew up with the distiller as a father, because what's quite interesting is looking at how women came by the skills that they needed to operate in a particular industry. And she evidently came to the marriage and ultimately to her inheritance with either absorbed knowledge or knowledge that she had actively sought in the environment that she grew up in. And Sometimes you see with women who have, who've inherited from a, a husband, sometimes they're just sort of keeping things ticking over until maybe an eldest son can take over. And in fact, that is what ultimately happened to Marianne Locke. But she wasn't just keeping things ticking over. She was innovating and pushing the whole time. She increased the production output of the distillery. She introduced a retail store outside the distillery so locals could come and buy whiskey and take it home either to, to drink or to, or to sell on in their own shops. And she also kind of woke the company up to the market that was out there for the whiskey. So she developed partnerships with blenders in Belfast, in Dublin and London and used the, the developing sort of canal and, and, and rail infrastructure. Were they based in Kilbegan? In Gilbegan, yeah, mm. where they still are. Yeah, indeed, yeah. yeah. Now, the women obviously were not therefore afraid to be innovative, afraid to take risks. Um, tell me about Eliza Jane Bell and how she left her mark. Well, Eliza Jane Bell, so we're back to Sackville Street now for Eliza Jane Bell. She was another inheritor. She inherited Butler's Medical Hall, which was at 53 and 54 Sackville Street, which is now Burger King. Um, Butler's had already been going for about 60 years when she in inherited it. And it was a really well-established, really successful business. It was kind of part apothecary. It had a compounding department, you know, where they made up prescriptions. And they also sold hundreds and hundreds of own brand remedies for anything you could think of under the butler's label. So you could buy cough lozenges or headache pills or powders. So Eliza Jane Bell's husband, Sandman Bell, had gone from a, a, a kind of partnership to sole ownership of the medical hall. And he had undertaken a, a rebuild of the premises. But the full programme of modernisation really came to fruition on Eliza's watch. Sandman Bell died when they'd been married for only two years. So she was only 28 when she inherited. But she launched right into it and she really recreated Butler's Medical Hall really much more in the, in the shape of the kind of retail chemist that we would know today you know, where you might get your pack of ibuprofen and your COVID tests, but you might also get maybe a scented candle and, you know, a birthday present for somebody. And then later on, you know, by the turn of the century, something that I think is really interesting is that Butler's Medical Hall was advertising that it was a stockist of Southall's um, disposable sanitary towels. 
And I mean, you know, nobody needs me to tell them how how revolutionary that must have seemed, you know, over 100 years ago, 120 years ago, how, how liberating it would have been to have access to that kind of product. Now, obviously, it was for women who could afford them. You know, it was a couple of shillings for a, a half dozen pack. So I really like the idea of Eliza Jane Bell being progressive, you know, being in a position to do something that might seem small, that made a real qualitative difference to Irish women's lives and that she was happy to be public about the fact that she was doing it. Um, dressmaking, that's an, an industry that you would associate with women where women, many women succeeded. One of them, a very, very interesting woman indeed, and that was Kathleen Clark, you know, a fascinating woman in her own right, but also widow of the 1916 leader, uh, Tom Clark. What did she do? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. Who doesn't already love Kathleen Clark? She was born Kathleen Daly in Limerick and before she lived with her uncle who ran a bakery. But she was determined, before she was 18, she was determined that she was going to be independent from her uncle. And so she pleaded with him to allow her to do an apprenticeship with a dressmaker. And he did. And when she was 18, then she started her own business in Cecil Street in Limerick. And her family was actually really quite against it. They thought she was too young. She writes about this in her memoir. They thought she was too young. They thought she didn't have enough experience. They thought that people wouldn't have confidence in her and wouldn't bring her any custom. She didn't pay much attention to her family in general, did she? She, she paid, didn't want her to marry Tom Clark either. She paid zero attention. <laughs> made absolutely no difference to her. And her dressmaking business was a wild success. She had to increase her staff all the time. She had to move to larger premises in, in O'Connell Street. And obviously, of course, she met Tom and they had this very passionate love story. And he was in America and she was making plans to close up the business and go to be with him over there to marry him in America, which she eventually did. But during the couple of years leading up to that, she writes to him about the business and how busy she is and what she's working on and all, all the sort of daily frustrations of it. And she also writes about closing up and how difficult it is and that she can't just leave people in the lurch and there's a great fate coming up and people want to be turned out well for it. And she's got to provide them with the outfits that they're expecting. But she does close up in the end. And um, she went over to him in 1901. I think she went over to marry him. But even after they were, they were married, they together went into the, the ice cream shop business, which was after their first child was born and, and Tom had lost his job. She was the one who had the savings. She was the one who had the money to put into the shop. And she was also the one who had the commercial experience to run it. And then later on, they ran a farm and she wrote about having the first cauliflowers from Long Island into the New York market. I mean, fantastic. <laughs> and, um, and how they got the best price for them. And, and then, of course, they came back to Ireland together and ran the, the tobacconist shops that everybody would, would know about. And I really love the idea that, you know, there was this combination of the sort of high-minded Republican idealism with this very pragmatic commercial knowledge and, and experience that she brought to bear on their lives and ensured an income stream for the family. Now, we've been talking about the success stories, but business is something that is also associated with failure or failure is associated with business. Were you able to come across any of those kind of records detailing failures in business? Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of failures. You know, you'd love to be able to say that, you, you know, women were successful at everything they did. And of course, they weren't. And a great treasure trove of, of sources I found in the public record office in Northern Ireland, where they have bankruptcy records from the Belfast Local Bankruptcy Court. And 
while they are detailing struggle and failure, they're also absolutely fascinating because they're really detailed. And so they give you an insight into, often an insight into the kind of the narrative of the business and how it ended up in difficulty. There's a schedule of debts owed and debts owing so you can get a picture of the kind of business that they were doing. At the time things started to go wrong, you start to see the tension between offering credit to a customer on the one hand, yet owing your supplier on the other hand. And at some point, you know, that gap becomes just too big to bridge. The bankruptcy records also have, quite often they'll have a schedule of assets. So you'll see, you know, what you might call the, the kind of material culture of the small business. They will list, you know, a bacon slicer, a couple of marble slabs, a mahogany counter, a delivery cart, that kind of thing, which really kind of vividly brings to life a picture of the, the daily life of what it was like working in the shop. And then they quite often they lived over the shop as well. So after the bacon slicer, you'll come across the couple of bedroom chairs, mm. a wardrobe, you know, a mirror. And you can really imagine this woman getting out of bed and doing her hair and going downstairs and standing at the counter and starting to slice the bacon. But also potentially having to part with these once the bankruptcy is completed. And glad they had them at, at, mm. at that point because they, they were saleable items, yeah. Um, if anybody's interested in what we were, we were talking about, particularly in relation to 1916, the Property Losses Committee records of 1916 are available on the National Archives Ireland website so you can find out more about Mr Malone and, and his alias. Fascinating records and they shine a light on the, the many, many women who were running businesses at the time. Unfortunately, the women whose businesses were basically destroyed by the 1916 rising, but you do get an insight. It's been great to talk to you, Antonia. Thank you very much indeed uh, talk to you about how women took up the opportunity to set up businesses when it really wasn't what society was dictating at the time. Thank you very much for joining us on The History Show. Thank you so much. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath and Mark Dwyer on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.